my grandfather has a bar in Toronto where I live um, called Grossman's Tavern. And it was one of the first bars to actually mix music and alcohol. Um, and that was a really big deal in the 1940s because the two would always be separate. You would have bars that wouldn't have bands playing. And then you would also have bands playing, but you know, have a dry bar. So my grandfather was one of the first in, in, in the city of Toronto to kind of merge that. And growing up in the 1970s, um, before he ended up selling it, it, it was a place where draft dodgers hung out. It was a place where the entire community of the downtown Toronto hung out. You had all these different ethnic groups, working class, lower class, upper class, everybody kind of converged on this bar because there were no egos in this place. Um, and growing up, I remember watching not just the band's performing magic to me what they were able to do was magic because i couldn't do it and it was mystified that these people could make these sounds i was mystified that they could bring the entire community together using music and and all walks of life and so um growing up it was always about community music to me was all about having not just a sense of self but a, a place to make the world better um, or worse, depending on, you know, what your mood was that day. Um, and growing up, I had a subscription to Billboard magazine because I loved reading the stories of record labels and, and distributors and managers. These people were like my Star Wars figurines. Like they were my characters in Dungeons and Dragons that other kids would play. I wanted to know more about this otherworldly industry. It was completely like that. I had no idea how to be a part of it. I just knew that I loved it. And, um, you know, still developed that love was the geek that taped songs off of the radio in the 1980s. And then 1990s, I went to university and started a record label right after that, which became a distributor um, and a booking agent. And then that led to doing publicity. So a large part of it was being in the bar and seeing you know the Beatles and Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and little Richard um, performing on the TV and wanting to be a part of that world in the beginning of my career back in the late 1990s it was it was trying hard not to be bad at because I didn't know what else I could do this was the only thing I wanted to do I knew I couldn't play an instrument I knew that I stunk at singing I have no musical talent whatsoever I'm sorry to say, but I don't even think your guitars could have helped me back then. Um, I was that bad. I know it's super easy for your guitars. I've seen it. I could not get there. I was just one of these kids that loved music, but had no talent for it. But playing and watching those instruments and stinking at it made me want it to be a part of it even more. I saw ABBA in 1978 with my parents and I was seven years old. They, they came out wearing Toronto Maple Leaf hockey jerseys for the encore. And I thought, that's so cool. Um, and I was blown away that the fact that they knew what city they were in, um, not knowing that like every band does that. And they probably have like 100 hockey jerseys in their backstage rider that, you know, they need to do it. But I thought it was wild. Like, I, I think I'm still kind of chasing that little bit of a concert high being eight years old and the lights going down. There's no more excitement I think I've ever felt than the moment that the lights go down and before the, the artist or band gets on stage where you can feel the actual energy and the electricity in the air and just being a goofball, knowing that this is gonna be amazing. 
I saw Genesis in 1981. They were my favorite band back then. They're still my favorite band now. And I got to see them. Um, and that was wild. I saw them with my sister. So it was the first concert I ever saw without my parents. And my, my sister's a couple of years older. And it was, it made me feel like such a big kid. It made me feel like such a, a guy going to it because everybody else around me was all adults. I saw the Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam, and Red Hot Chili Peppers in 1991 in the same week as I saw Nirvana all in a small club. And it was the first time that other than like growing up watching like Duran Duran or A Flock of Seagulls or Tears for Fears in the 80s, this was like I was 21 and it was the first time that I really saw artists that were not so much older than I was being able to, to do something with music. There was a band I saw, and nobody's going to care about me saying this anyway, So, but it means something to me. I saw a band. I used to go to down to Austin for South by Southwest um, for about 20 years. And in the mid-1990s, I was just walking down the street, and I heard the greatest band I've ever heard in my entire life. And I walked into a club, and I watched three songs, and they were amazing. They had 100 people in there. And I, it was with the right moment, with the right time, with the right little kind of buzz going inside of me. And I watched this band and it was like, this band is going to be massive. They should be massive. This is what music is all about. Somebody told me who they were. I promptly forgot about them. And I never remembered what their name was after that. And it always bugged me that I didn't know who that band was. Um, so I'm going to say that that band with Pink Floyd. No, no. Um, I, I have no idea. But that's, that's to me, is just so signifies my life. It's just every opportunity I get to work with an independent artist could be that band to somebody, you know, or could be that artist to somebody. So that's why I continue to do what I do. It's just to help spread the word about that kind of stuff. When I'm posting on social media or when I got on social media, it was really about the promotion of music, regardless of if these artists were on the record label or not. I would be posting about everybody, everybody that was doing something amazing I wanted to post about. To me, it was just about being not a music critic because the world has enough critics. It was just about being a music champion more than anything else. You know, in the beginning, when I first got on Twitter about 13, 14 years ago, it was, it was really a small community of people. There weren't that many people on there. It was just marveling at the fact that, like, Lady Gaga would respond back to one of my posts, or Cameron Crowe, the director and writer of Say Anything and Almost Famous, or David Crosby would retweet this stuff. Like, again, people that I grew up listening to and watching. But my favorite story was I asked the question, did you ever have tickets for a show and couldn't go in the end of it, but regret it. And somebody, somebody wrote that they, they were um, 11 years old and they had tickets to go see Sean Cassidy. And if people don't know who Sean Cassidy was, he was like this pop idol in the 70s and 80s um, who went on to have a huge career in film and television on the directing side. But um, in the 70s and 80s, he was like the you know, the cover of every teen magazine um, in the world. And so this woman wrote that, you know, when she was a kid, she had tickets to Sean Cassidy. She couldn't go at the end of it. Um, and she's always regretted it because she's loved him to still to this day. For somebody like a Sean Cassidy, who wasn't really well respected by the media, he was a pop idol who just happened to continue to do what he did. Um, and Sean Cassidy responded back to her 
and said, you know, I'm sorry that you didn't get a chance to go to the show, but the next time that, you know, I'm in your area, let me know. And because she still tours from time to time. And they were starting talking and it blew her away that Sean Cassidy responded back to her. And I looked at that afterwards and I'm like, this is exactly the reason why I love social media and the reason why all of the hate and haters that I see and get can just go to bed. And those things probably happen a lot more than I realize, but I just, I don't look at it as much because I don't want it to get into my head that I need to stick to a certain road. I'll post about Drake breaking some kind of Billboard Hot 100 record, and then the next post, do something about Fleetwood Mac, followed by, you know, Louis Armstrong. And, and, and that's, that's my world. When, when I'm asking those questions on Twitter, it's never about me. I just love the fact that it could bring up and conjure some memories of, of things, but also maybe perhaps introducing them to artists that they don't know. The reason why I became a publicist was when I was in university, I would get approached by these people that worked at record labels um, and they were publicists and they would be inviting me to go and see the shows that they were promoting or getting free records or CDs and writing about them and talking about them on the air. And I thought that was just the coolest job. Like what more, what better, what cooler job could you have had than to give music out for free and have everybody essentially love you for that? And like, you know, you're the person with all the concert tickets to the hottest show. Yes. Okay. I'll, I'll, you know, love that. Um, and, um, so when I started the record label, I realized that without shows, nobody would come and buy the record that we were putting out. So I became a booking agent along with the record label. And then I realized that without publicity, without contacting the media, without contacting the, the, the radio stations and the newspapers and the TV outlets, letting them know that this artist is coming into town, nobody would come and buy a ticket for the artists that I booked in order to sell the record so then one day i just realized that i could just cut out everything and just do the stuff i love to do which is promotion of music and become a publicist so on a daily basis um i'm the one that is the the go between um the media and the artist so i'm talking to the media and that's could be blogs and newspapers and magazines and radio stations and campus radio shows, TV shows, Spotify playlisters, um, TikTok music critics, YouTubers, um, talking about the, the artists and working their latest video or song or EP or album or tour date. And, you know, trying to find the stories that I think others would be interested in. You know, the media aren't interested really in writing about the new song. It's not really about that. It's hard to write about music. So you have to come up with the ideas on what they could write 600 words about. What can they talk to you for 12 minutes on the radio about? And very rarely does that have to do with the tone of your guitar, the way that you wrote the song. Because most people, they don't care. What they really want to know is what was going on in your life as a human being and what kind of passions were you having and what kind of thinking went in behind the actual creation of the song that they could connect to. And that's really what music is really all about. It's not just the fact that you may love the Beatles or the Stones or the Who or none of them. It's like you 
try to find the connections between yourself and what is going on in your life and the artist that you love. So as a publicist, my job is to try to find the stories for the media outlets to connect to in order to reveal more about what the artist is all about and the, the act of creation of the song or video or album. You know, I've been so lucky and I know that this is going to sound like such a cliche or a canned answer, but I'm so lucky to work the artists that I actually bought their records. I saw their shows growing up and never in a million years would I think that I would be working with a Ray Charles or Ringo Starr for a number of albums or Bob Geldof or Sinead O'Connor or Smashing Pumpkins. I woke up at 3.30 in the morning in July watching Live Aid back in 1985 and to hang out and work with so many of the artists that performed on that show years later it makes me very cautious when they're in their car so that I don't get into a car accident. Um, it makes me look at them thinking, I bought your album. Or in the case of Ringo Starr, you're a Beatle over and over again. And knowing that he knows that I'm thinking that, because everybody does. When you meet a Paul McCartney or a Ringo Starr or George Harrison or John Lennon when they were both alive in the latter part, um, you know all they're thinking of that you know who they, you know that they know that you know who they are. But, you know, people like Sinead O'Connor, I, I thought were absolutely brilliant. Um, I, I've long admired her sticking with her morals, standing up for what she believes in. Her music was and still is incredibly vital to me. Um, and getting to hang out with her for a number of days every couple of years while she was doing promotion for her albums in Toronto um, made me not take any of this for granted. I mean, I, I know I'm one of the lucky ones to be able to do this. So it's not really one artist. It's just the fact that when I was buying their albums and, and listening to it over and over again, because I had no other money to buy another album, never in a million years would I think that I would be hanging out with them and that they would be liking me or at least pretending that they liked me. I didn't do much of getting me here. It was everybody else. It was the artist that got to write the song. It was me being in Toronto and not New York, battling it out between like 16,000 publicists. Um, it was growing up with my grandfather having a bar. It was such privileged, lucky position that I was born when I was, where I was, and how I perceived something enough to make it a passion. And I think when you're a parent, you realize that more and more how the things that you don't think about or took for granted allowed you to get to this point, both good and bad. So when you're a parent and you start to see that your kid is dancing a lot when you put on the radio and you think, wow, that kid's got rhythm. Um, it's the best dancer of a baby that I've ever seen. Your natural step is to like, let's go and get the kid an instrument. You try to find those passions. I had that and I stunk at it, but I knew well enough that if I just kept going and going and going and stinking at doing what I wanted to do, soon I would get better. But it was only like 1% of what I was able to do myself. The rest of it is all the people around me, which is why your company is so important because you can't really wait for the kid or child to come along and say, I think I want to play guitar. Sometimes it's those little things of picking up going, well, let's just try this because we might have you know, we might have the next Carlos Santana or we might have, you know, the next inventor around. Because art is amazing. Music is amazing. Studies have consistently shown 
that putting an instrument into a kid's hands makes them feel better about themselves. It helps them with math. It helps them with science. It helps them with technology. It helps them with social settings. It helps them reveal something about themselves. It gives them self-confidence. There has never been a musician in history of this world that has regretted playing an instrument. And the more instrument that we can put into kids' hands and earlier, the better it's going to be for everybody.